Hi, welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. All right, get your Bibles out, if you would, please. We are doing a series around here that we're calling Work Life. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at God's plan for work and your personal calling in work. Today, we're going to talk about something that I think has actually become a crisis in the workforce today. Um, look at this. There's, there's an article. There was an article in the U.S. News and World Report, and the article was entitled "This: Business Schools Increasingly Require Students to Study Ethics." This is what it said: Business students at graduate schools across the nation particularly in the wake of scandals surrounding Enron, Bernard Madoff, and others, can increasingly expect to take at least one ethics course. According to Mark Johnston, a professor of marketing and ethics at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, the importance of ethics in business is more critical than ever. At the Comer Graduate School of Business, where Johnston teaches, MBA students are required to take an ethics course and to engage in community service. The results have been dramatic, he says. Eli Koss, an assistant professor at the University of San Francisco, sees it as a kind of race against time. Many people blame business schools for the behavior of our graduates, he says. We only have them for a few years of their lives, and once they leave, they join organizations whose cultures and other members may have very different views on ethics, corporate social responsibility, their relevance, and even what they mean in that particular organization. Schools need to help students develop in a way that stays true to their moral compass, Koss says, even when they leave the university and even if they're surrounded by others whom they subscribe to different standards. And then there was another article that was entitled this, Can You Train Business School Students to Be Ethical? And this article said it this way, What we need to do is to equip our students to become moral architects, to create environments that naturally lead people, themselves included, in the right direction. Being a moral moral architect can involve modest organizational changes like shifting where people sign a document to more complex ones like introducing an ethical checklist for all important decisions in the way that doctors and pilots use checklists to reduce errors and save lives. It also involves training students to know where it's most valuable to remove a temptation in the first place. For example, designing organizations to minimize conflicts of interest. The only way we'll get our students to integrate their moral compasses with, that, with the practical tools of business we, we teach them is to incorporate the topics of ethics throughout the curriculum. This will require the accounting and finance and marketing professors to grasp the ethical blind spots inherent in their perspective areas and to appreciate and recognize approaches to lessening them. Lessening them. Professors, in other words, need to be moral architects themselves. When you stop and ask students whether they'd like their dying words to be, I maximize profits, a wave of laughter ripples through the class as all but the most callous have higher aspirations for themselves. When we ask MBA students why they might want to be a CEO, the first two responses are, I want to make a difference and I enjoy a challenge. Making gobs of money always comes in third. 
We need to work harder to equip students to live up to those aspirations. And if we're not going to make a better faith effort in this endeavor, perhaps we should remove discussion of ethics from business schools altogether. Otherwise, it serves merely as empty PR for MBA um, programs and to appease the consciences of those who teach in them. It's just a, it's an interesting thing that's, I think, happening in our culture here today. When I, when I was um, going to business school, I have an, one of my degrees is in international business, and, and I never had to take one ethics class, not, not one. It wasn't even a part, it wasn't even an option, but now it is just everywhere because over and over and over, companies are really struggling in finding good ethical people, and because of all the collapses that have happened in people's individual lives that have become just forefront in companies' um, kind of histories there. There are all these out there where there has been great moral and ethical failure. It's just on the rise. People are aware of this. And when I read articles like this, and when I um, talk with friends of mine who are CEOs or owners or managers of companies, and they talk about these challenges, my first question is, where in the world are all the Christians? Because of all the people in the world, Christians should be thriving in this cultural void. In Daniel chapter 1, if you've read that Old Testament book, you're in, we're introduced to this group of young Hebrews who are thrown into this hostile and even greater heathen culture of Babylon. But these young millennials, they never compromise. In that really difficult situation, they never compromised, and their ethics and their skills caused them to rise in, in promotion and in their roles and their jobs in the king's palace. In fact, Daniel chapter 1, verse 20, it says this about them, Daniel 1, verse 20, whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them, listen to this, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the other magicians and enchanters in the entire kingdom. In other words, they were 10 times better than all the other employees in the kingdom. And I just think this is how, what should mark our lives. Whether No matter what your job is, no matter what company that you work for, I believe that God has called us to work with great skill, but also with a moral compass that is completely unshakable. Because at the end of the day, you and I are called to work as unto the Lord, not just for men or women or for your company. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And I think we got to remember what this is about. We have to remember who we're actually working for. And so today, I want to talk to you about how to do this practically. We've been talking a lot of theories so far in regards to how God looks at work. But I want to kind of get really practical for you here today. And I want to give you five ways you can work unto the Lord in your job. And as we talk about these five different ways, I want you to be asking yourself the question, are these things true of me? So in your work environment, I want you to be evaluating yourself. How are you doing in these five different, um, these five different areas that we're going to talk about? Because whether you're an employer or employee, I think at the end of the day, these are five things that need to be true of us as followers of Jesus Christ. So here's number one, be diligent. Be diligent. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says, Lazy hands makes for poverty, but diligent hands brings wealth. 
That word diligent in the original Hebrew language that this was written in is the word karutz, which means to be sharp, to be industrious. Proverbs 12 verse 27 says, a precious possession, the, the precious possession of a man is diligence. Isn't that interesting? The precious possession of a man is diligent. In other words, diligence is a powerful commodity in our lives and in our jobs. As a matter of fact, it's one of the qualities of a Proverbs 31 woman. Verse 13 says, she works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it out of her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. And so a diligent worker is a hard worker, not a lazy worker. And I don't think it takes a a doctorate degree to understand that it's not the lazy worker who's going to get the promotion. It's not the lazy worker who's going to get the raise. The diligent worker is the one who gets noticed. Proverbs 12, verse 24 says, Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. I love how the New Living Translation um, describes this. It says it this way, Work hard and become a leader. Be lazy and become a slave. And I just think it's so true. You show me anybody who's leading anything, and you'll see a really hard worker. Proverbs 14, verse 23 says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. In other words, if all that you're doing is saying, One day, one day, I'm going to do this. One day, I'm going to start a business. One day, I'm going to follow my dream. When I get around to it, you, you know, have you ever seen those little things? You can buy those now, those round to it. You know, it's actually a round thing. It says, This is your round to it. Anyway, that was a slight, that was a slight point. The things that go in and out of my brain at times. I'm sorry. That was <clears throat> Anyway, but if all you're doing is just saying, it's one of these days when I get around to it, at the end of the day, if you're never actually doing anything, you're just going to end up with the same old, same old, and you're going to end up poor. That's what Proverbs is talking about. But if you get to work, if you roll up your sleeves and start working hard, the doors will open for you. And I think it's just really important, especially for all you young people who are just kind of starting in your this work situation, that this is where it starts. Roll up your sleeves and work hard, and the doors will eventually open for you. Proverbs 6, verse 9 says, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of your hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed Man, see, laziness will lead to poverty every single time. I love how the New Living Translation describes this. It says, but you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? See, being lazy, it's, it's the exact opposite of being industrious. The sluggard, the lazy person takes no initiative. The sluggard wastes time. The sluggard is unproductive. As a result, then reaps the consequences of his laziness. And I think even worse yet, that lazy person is kind of this, has this downward spiral that will eventually lead you into trouble, into moral failure. Because if you're just hanging out, if you're not working hard, then you're going to start doing things you shouldn't be doing. You're going to start looking at some things you shouldn't be looking at. You're going to start eating some things you shouldn't be eating. Proverbs 21 verse 25 says, The craving of a sluggard will be the death of him, because his hands refuse to work. But, on the other hand, when you're being faithful, when you're being diligent, when you're working hard, when you're being industrious, 
you're going to sleep really, really good. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 12 says, people who work hard sleep well. And so number one, be diligent. Now, as a side point here, I want you to notice how many Proverbs scriptures I just read. If you don't know what to read in your Bible, if you're not reading something every day in your Bible, let me just suggest Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, one for every day. So no matter what the day is, today is August what? Today's the 18th. So 18, read Proverbs 18. What, you look at whatever the date is and just read that proverb because they don't go in order. And so it's just an easy thing. And it's just easy investment in your soul, in your life, and then put it into motion. Whatever that wisdom that's given to you, do it. Do what he says. It really helps, especially in our work situation. So number one, be diligent. Then here's a second way to work into the Lord in your job, and that is develop a skill. <laughs> it's a simple thing, right? But actually develop a skill. Proverbs 22, verse 29 says, Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Now, how many know that phrase, jack of all trades, master of none? Have you heard that before? I think a lot of times we tout it. You know, I'm not really good at anything. I can do a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm not really good at it. Did you know that that's not actually the right statement? It's actually a misquote of Benjamin Franklin's saying, which is jack of all trades, master of one. Somebody somehow turned it around and got it all backwards. And we kind of tout, well, you know, I'm okay. I know a whole whole bunch of things, but I'm not really good at anything. You're missing the point. Because, yeah, be good at a bunch of stuff, but be really great at one. Proverbs 24, verse 27 says, Prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterwards build your house. Now, notice the key here, because he's putting his finger on how do we do this? How do we actually become skilled at what we do? And the key word is prepare. Right? Prepare. Preparation is the key. Your preparation is how you begin to be effective and skilled as a worker. Proverbs 6, verse 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. This is kind of funny. So he's talking to the sluggard again, that lazy person. He says, If you're you're not going to listen to anybody else, look at what the ant does. Okay? Just look at what the ant does. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer... And gathers her provision in the hearse. Preparation. Preparation is the key to being able to become effective and skilled at something. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The mind of the man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, I think a lot of us know that verse simply because of the last part. When we tend to tout the last part of this verse, the Lord directs our step. And how many are you grateful the Lord directs our steps? Right? I mean, it's fantastic. But I think a lot of times we kind of say it in a way that's passive. Well, you know what, I know it's going to happen here, you know, but God's going to have his way and he'll direct my steps. In other words, eventually everything's going to work out okay because God's directing my steps. But you're missing the first part of this. There's a connection in these verses here because the first part says, the mind of the man plans his ways. In other words, you prepare You prepare, and you start moving in a direction, and then as you do, the Lord will direct your steps. There is nothing passive about that. It's all about preparation. And so if you're going to be skilled at something, prepare. It's going to take preparation, and preparation will eventually yield a reward. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Which is why education is so important. 
It's the reason why apprenticeship opportunities are just so important because it helps you develop a skill. I mean, think about Jesus. This is interesting. Think about Jesus. 30 years of preparation for just three years of effective work. You hear that? 30 years. 30 years of preparation for just three years of effective work. But it was pretty effective work, don't you agree? I think we're such in a hurry, and we kind of go like this. We're gonna, we want to get there. We want to get there. 30 years of preparation for just three years of effective work that changed all of our lives. So number two, develop a skill. Here's number three. Third way to work to, unto the Lord in your job, and that is go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. Come on, turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor now he's talking about you. Okay? Come on, turn to your neighbor tell your neighbor now he's talking about you. Go the extra mile. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Jesus said, so you too... When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. In other words, Jesus is describing here that when, when you're working, don't just do what you have to do. Don't do that. Don't just do what you have to do. Do more than you have to do. Go the extra mile. Go above and beyond what's expected of you. I was sharing this in the first service that... One of the things Courtney and I would do when we were raising our kids when they were younger. Now they're all they're all out of the house. When they were they, when we were they were younger, and they actually listened to us, and we could actually teach them some things. One of the things that we'd have them do is that after any chore they did, they were they they, they needed to come and talk um, with one of us, and basically say, "I'm done. Is there anything else I can do?" So if the assignment was go clean your room. After they're done cleaning the room, they said, I finished cleaning my room. Is there anything else I can do? And what we were trying to do is unwork this idea that I'm just going to do what I have to do. And come on, parents, you know, you know what I'm talking about here? I'll, you all kind of probably, probably remember yourself, too, you know, in that. You know, just, we just want, we want to get done. And you can see the pain. I could see the pain in my kids' eyes and even making the statement of, is there anything else you want me to do? But what we're trying to do is train them in this whole idea of go the extra mile. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. That's what we're called to do. And so number three, go the extra mile. Here's number four. The fourth way to work into the Lord in your job, and that is bring God intentionally and specifically into your work. Be intentional about it. Be specific about it. Again, Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work out with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. Here's the thing that's so important for us to understand. Your attitude, your work ethic, has a direct reflection on the reality or the lack thereof of who Jesus is. We are called to reflect to the world who Jesus is. And so your attitude and your work ethic is reflecting the reality or the lack thereof of who Jesus is, which is why it's absolutely imperative that you and I, that we bring God intentionally and specifically into our work situations because we are reflecting him. Look at this in Isaiah 58 verse 1. It says, shout, a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy at, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? 
and love having me on their side. But they also complain, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line of your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Verse 9, if you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Now look, at, look at what God's call is on your life. Your life is to glow in the darkness of wherever you are. This is how we're called, what we're called to do. Your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. Now, I want you to notice something here that God's talking about here with the Israelites here. And I just think that it describes so much of what happens to so many of our lives. And that is we, we have this tendency to segment our lives. And as a result, there's just kind of this increasing discrepancy that happens in our lives. And so we say that we're God followers. We say that we love God. We call ourselves Christians. We come to church. But yet, when it comes to how we do business, when it comes to how we treat people, when it comes to how we are in our homes, how you treat your, your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat your friends, when it comes to what's going on in, ter- your, in, ter- in terms of your internal thoughts and your desires, there tends to be a lack of consistency then in how we live our lives. I was talking about this a couple months ago, and I and I used an illustration I think is just helpful in understanding this. And so I want to bring it back up here because I, I think it's a, a, it's a good visual of how our lives are to be and how, what, what we u- end up use, doing in our lives. So if you think of your life as a house, and in your house, in your life, are all these different rooms. And so in your house, there's a career room, there's a hobbies room, there's a family room, there's a friends room, there's a, there's a goals and desires room, there's a finance room, there's a sexuality room, there's a secret room. We all have all these different rooms, and we may have different rooms, each of us, in our house or in our life. But the tendency when it comes to God is that we just add on another room to our life. And we may call it our church room. And it's in that room that we put God, and that's where he stays. But here's the problem with all this, everybody. Your faith can't be just in one room of your life. Your faith has to be able to permeate every aspect of of your life. It has to interact with every aspect of your life. Your faith needs to become like the very air that you breathe as you go in and out of all these different rooms in our life. Instead of relegating God to just one room, you can't just do that. You can't just have God just on, on today, on Sunday, at church like this. He needs to be able to permeate every aspect of our life. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He says, You don't get wormy apples off a healthy tree, nor good apples off a diseased tree. The health of the apple tells the health of the tree. You must begin with your own life-giving lives. It's who you are, not what you say and do, that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. Why are you so polite with me, always saying, yes, sir, and that's right, sir, but never doing a thing I tell you? These words I speak to you are not mere additions to your life, not just adding another room to your life, not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundation words, words to build a life on. If you work the words into your life, 
You're like a smart carpenter who dug deep and laid the foundation of his house on bedrock. When the river burst its banks and, and crashed against the house, nothing could shake it. It was built to last. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a dumb carpenter who built a house but skipped the foundation. When the swollen river came crashing in, it collapsed like a house of cards. It was a total loss. You see what Jesus was saying? It's the same thing that God was telling the, the Israelites here. Your faith can't just be a room that you add on into your life. It can't just be separate where you kind of force God in. Your, your faith has to be actually permeate every aspect of our lives. Because look at how he describes what happens if we just add on a room and we force God into that one room. Look, look what he describes happens. Verse 49. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, into all these other rooms, you're like a dumb carpenter who built a house but skipped the foundation. And so when the, when, the, when the swollen river came crashing in, it collapsed like a house of cards. It was a total loss. In other words, if that's how you live your life, then eventually, ultimately, you will have a crisis of faith. You're going to come to a crisis of faith in your life. And I want to share with you a story of a friend of mine. He actually was one of the, my best, one of the groomsmen in our, in our wedding. And so Courtney, I've known him, you know, since our college days. And, and uh, so I want you to listen to his story because here's, here's unfortunately um, a good example of this. And I always remember experience is a great teacher, but listen to everybody, it doesn't have to be your own experiences. We need to learn from other people's mistakes. Listen to this story. When I got out of school, and I got out of college, he writes, I started to work for Wiltel, which eventually was purchased by WorldCom. I was quickly advancing in the company, and my dream was to one day be the controller of the company, and I was well on my way. I actually reported to the controller of the company and did special projects for him and the CFO, including the purchase of MCI. Well, one day, it was just yanked out from underneath me without a lot of explanation. When I lost my position at WorldCom, I was really upset with God because I thought he was on board with my plan. It seemed everything was progressing just the way I'd planned, and then for, for seemingly no reason, it just all fell apart. For two years, I stewed about this with God, and it actually brought me to a crisis of faith. But then two years later, the scandal broke with WorldCom. What I didn't know at the time was that I had actually left the company just months before they started to make those all all those now famous illegal entries into the books. I didn't know this then, but I now realize that the reason they didn't want me around was because they only wanted a few people to know what they were illegally doing. And in the past, I had been very vocal about questionable entries. God had intervened on my behalf. How many are thankful for God's intervention? As stubborn and as stupid and bullheaded as we are, I just love, I still love God's intervention. You know, don't count on it, everybody. <laughs> but aren't you glad when he does intervene on that? God had intervened on my behalf, even though I was not listening to him. And I had, in effect, restrained his workings and my career decisions. Thankfully, he was still working behind the scenes for my benefit. However, because I hadn't been allowing God access to my career decisions all along, even though God did intervene and save my life, the next several years were really difficult. In spite of the fact that I no longer worked for the company, that didn't stop them from trying to blame me for all those entries. When the SEC came down hard on them, they told them that I was the one who found a way to make those entries, and they were doing it based on my advice. Needless to say, I had many meetings with the FBI, SEC, and the U.S. Attorney in New York, who was prosecuting the case. I knew I was innocent, and I was actually never represented by an attorney while meeting with them. I was supposed to be called as a witness, but I never got called because every time I was about to have to go and be a witness, the person would plead guilty. 
Once Scott Sullivan, Sullivan, the CFO, pleaded guilty, they no longer needed me to go after the CEO. I never talked about to the media because I didn't want to tarnish what I was going to say on the witness stand. Therefore, the media never got my side of the story. If you Google my name, you will see how even the media was trying to blame me for what happened. Even though this time was extremely difficult, I can't imagine what it would have been like or where I had, would be now if God hadn't intervened in my plans. It was a very interesting two years of my life. When I first lost a position at WorldCom, I was a little upset. Okay, I was a lot upset with God because I thought he was on board with my plan. But after the scandal broke, there has not been a day in my life that I have not been thankful for God getting me out of the situation. I've learned a big lifelong lesson. It's just a, my point and the point in case here is that it's just so important to bring God in into all those things. He sees everything and we don't, everybody. And so bringing God into your work situation is absolutely imperative. Remembering who you are working for is absolutely imperative. And so then intentionally, specifically, tangibly bring God into all your life as well as your work situations. And then here's the fifth way to work into the Lord in, um, in your job, and that is don't quit don't quit because once you've found your calling, stay focused, stay focused, finish what you've been called to do. Acts 20 verse 24, the apostle Paul said, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me. This is why it's so important. What we talked about two weeks ago, understanding your call in work. Understanding the purpose, like what Travis shared last week. That's why it's so important to understand. Because once you know what your call is, once you know what your purpose is, then stay true to that. Because if you're going to finish well, you're going to have to stay focused. Because if it's hard right now in your work situation, you're going to have to stay focused. Because it's, it's easy to find a reason to quit. How many of you know that to be the case? There are going to be every single day a bazillion reasons for you to want to quit. The grass is always going to look greener on the other side. You're always going to think it's better over here, it's better over there. And so that's why it's so important to stay focused to the call, to the purpose that why God brought you there in the first place. But I want you to see something. I love this verse. And if you don't know this verse, make sure you make a, a note of it because this is something of how God sees you. Look at this in Hebrews 10, verse 39. It says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. That, if you don't know that verse, you need, to, you need to pen it, you need to write it down, you need to take a picture of it, you need to put it in you because this is so important because the reality might be that you may have had a nature that just easily jumped from one thing to another, that you would normally quit in different situations. But I want you to know, once you've given your life to Jesus Christ, the Spirit, the very presence of God comes inside of you. And His very presence causes you to be more than you are able to do yourself. It causes you to be greater than, than who, you really, who you have been in the past. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in you has a stick-to-itiveness to it. It is who he is, this whole idea of long-suffering and perseverance, just staying steady. That nature is now in you, so don't give up. Stay steady. Don't quit. Finish the assignment that God has given you. And you know what this also means? This also means if you're not dead, then you're not done. As long as there's breath in your lungs... As long as there is a pulse in your vein, come on, Mr. Gary, 
It doesn't matter. Where's Ernestine? Ernestine, how old are you this year? 94 in October. I'll never forget her three years ago. She's 91 going to Africa on a missions trip. Come on, everybody. 91. Don't quit. As long as there's breath in your lungs and a pulse in your vein, God's not done with you. There's still more that he wants to do in and through your life. And I just long, maybe this is just me as a pastor speaking this and, and, and you know, having pastor dreams, but I just long for the day when companies like Dell and Apple and IBM and Amazon and Indeed, and you can put the list together. I, just, I long for the day when companies will come knocking on the doors of churches asking, do you have any people in your church who need jobs? Because your people show up for work on time. Your people stay late. Your people have a great attitude. Your people are responsible and they love what they do and they're full of energy and life and integrity. I think this is what we're called to do. There is a cultural void right now where good ethical people are becoming harder and harder to find, which is the reason why you're a solution to the problem. Because part of your call as a follower of Jesus Christ, I just think you're to be the best employee out there. And those of you who own business, you're to have the best businesses and the best be the best employer out there as well. I just think that's God's call on your life. Next week, we're going to talk about this idea of mission and, and look at mission inside of the work. It's probably not what you're actually thinking. I'm just so excited to be able to teach it to you next week because I think it's going to really add some revelation in your life about this whole, this whole work thing that we're talking about. Well, let me pray for you here. We're going to take communion here together. But I want to pray for you before we do this. And so, Father, I pray for every single one. Lord, you know all the different work situations, whether they're a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, whether where they own their own company, they're an entrepreneur, where they work for a company, whether they're new at a job or whether they've been there for 50 years. God, you know all the individual situations. And you are the carrier of the call and purposes that you have for us. And so, Father, I pray for every single one here in this room, everyone who's hearing my voice, that, God, that your spirit of wisdom and revelation would stir in our hearts to see our work situations differently. And that as we go into work situations, whether it's later this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow morning, Lord, I pray that we would go with a different unction, that we would go with a different mindset, and Lord, that, that, that we would be great in those work situations. Lord, that we would be diligent, hard workers, ethical, full of integrity in what we do. Father, I pray that that would just rise in us, Lord, that we would, that we would reflect you accurately to the world in which we live. And I pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. See you next time.